1: London, this is The Economist. You're listening to Tasting Menu, an eclectic assortment of our finest stories from across the week. I'm Anne McElvoy, Head of Economist Radio, and on today's menu, why Elon Musk must do better, the tech design decisions bringing out the worst versions of ourselves, and why potatoes are no longer as cheap as chips. But we start with our cover story Europe has caught China's eye. A quarter of Chinese foreign direct investment is now in the old continent. The problem is that China knows money can buy it love. We argued that prudent Europeans need to be cautious. The Czech president, Milos Zeman, wants
0: his country to be China's unsinkable aircraft carrier in Europe. Last year, Greece stopped the European Union from criticising China's human rights record at a UN forum. Hungary and Greece prevented the EU from backing a court ruling against China's expansive territorial claims in the South China Sea. These increasingly
1: cosy relationships have
0: made both parties richer. Some investments are private, profit-seeking and harmless. There are also things that China, unlike Russia, does not want, such as to undermine the EU or sow chaos by furtively supporting populist, xenophobic parties it would rather Europe remain stable and open for business. On issues such as climate change and trade, China has acted more responsibly than the Trump administration.
1: But the idea of using China as a useful counterweight to an uncooperative America is misguided. Europe has far more in common with America than
0: China, however much Europeans may dislike the occupant of the White House. Moreover, China has used the EU's need for unanimity in many of its decisions to pick off one or two member states in order to block statements or actions of which it disapproves, as with human rights. To prevent this, a little more European solidarity would go a long way. None of its states alone can face down China, but acting together, they could do so for decades to come. The EU could, for example, use Qualified Majority Voting, or QMV, rather than unanimous votes on some subjects sensitive to China, such as human rights. QMV would make it harder for China to paralyse the EU by picking off one small member at a time. But America has a part to play too. Ideally, the Trump administration would stop treating Europeans as free riders on American power who deserve a good kicking. On trade especially, the EU is a powerful potential ally in getting China to abide by global norms. At a time when standards for IT and artificial intelligence risk splitting into a Chinese camp and an American one,
1: Europe can help find a middle path. To find out more about how Europe should gauge its welcome to China, read the briefing in this week's issue of The Economist. And if you haven't already, do subscribe. Go to economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. From grand geopolitical strategy, let's zoom in to the equally intricate manoeuvres being practised on tabletops across Britain.
2: Business at Games Workshop which makes the miniature figures used in its Warhammer series of tabletop games, is booming. Shares in the Nottingham-based company have risen by 660% over the past two years, making it the most successful firm in the FTSE 250 share index.
1: A considerable number of Britons are hand-painting tiny soldiers and rolling dice to let off steam.
2: Figuring out exactly how many epic battles between dwarfs and goblins are taking place across pub tables is hard, because most such games are made by private firms. But 22,000 people went to this year's UK Games Expo, the country's largest tabletop gaming convention, up from 12,000 two years ago. Tabletop games are the second most popular type of project on Kickstarter, a crowdfunding platform.
1: The truth is, fantasy has become a bit cool.
2: Sagas like Game of Thrones have sexed up the fantasy genre. Meanwhile, nerds have taken over the city and the tech industry, making them rich. One IT manager at a big bank says that tabletop games help him decompress. It's
1: probably cheaper than some other city boy habits that I won't mention. Time now for a taste of the week in Economist Radio. Elon Musk has agreed to step down as chairman of Tesla and to pay a $20 million fine after the Securities and Exchange Commission deemed some of his tweets misled investors. This week's episode of Money Talks asked Vijay Vaiduswaran, our US business editor, whether the SEC went far enough. Is the maverick tech tycoon too wild to run his own company?
2: There's a reasonable perspective that says that he should have been ousted, that he's reckless, he's uh, perhaps having some kind of personal meltdown, that a person like this should not be allowed to play a significant role in a company. But my view is that it is really his genius with all of its craziness that has driven this company from being an obscure startup to being uh, the leading EV company in the world. And I think that the company and its shareholders benefit from having him inside the company working in uh, crazy hours, sleeping on the factory floor, inspiring his workers and coming up with creative solutions, but perhaps not as chairman of the company running a board, especially a board that has been too friendly to him.
1: It's not easy being Elon, but Twitter is temptation to the best of us. So what, you might ask? Well, most of us don't run billion-dollar companies whose shareholders hang on our every word. But as Tristan Harris of the Center for Humane Technology told Babbage, our science and tech show, this stuff matters.
3: What most people don't understand about how technology is designed is there's teams of product managers who have one goal, which is how do I keep you using the product frequently and for as long as possible? With a teenager, it might be something like, if I'm trying to compete against other photo sharing apps, let me add filters into the app because if I give teenagers an unrealistic standard of beauty, then they will continue to use the app and check photos that have an unrealistic version of themselves and will keep them using it more often than if they didn't have the filter. But this turns into this kind of race to the bottom of the brainstem, deeper and lower into fear and outrage and unrealistic standards of beauty, deeper and deeper parts of the human animal to drill attention out of them to get that stock price up.
1: What do you think? Is technology a neutral tool like the hammer? Or should ethics play a much bigger role in the design of our favorite social networks? Do send us your thoughts to radio at economist.com and we'll certainly include some of them as we go along. As autumnal chill reaches London, we're all getting a bit nostalgic for this year's long hot summer. But those balmy days have had serious consequences for this year's potato crop. Ellen Halliday talked to Chris Lockwood on the week ahead Our current affairs podcast. It's something that people take very seriously. Chips are an emotive subject.
0: There is precedent for prices rising in the 70s when potatoes were once again short, prices went up hugely. Now there are different options. We can eat potatoes, we can also eat rice, and we can eat wheat. But Nonetheless, potato prices... You can't
2: have mussels with rice. Though, though. Well,
0: exactly, you sometimes... M- rice
2: is not going to be a thing.
0: <laughs> sometimes it just doesn't fit the bill. And the potatoes that have been harvested this year are also smaller, denser, and so they actually just don't serve the same purpose for people
1: like the fruit sellers of Brussels. Back to the print edition now. This week's science and technology section examined a rather unusual recent study.
3: Dog parks are petri dishes for canine rape culture, wrote Helen Wilson of the Portland Ungendering Research Initiative in her study published in May this year. Female dogs, the paper said, are a relatively oppressed class compared with male dogs and are subjected to threats of canine rape. It argued that the parallels with human society offered insights into how men might be trained out of sexual violence and bigotry. Suspicious? You'd be right. The Journal of Gender, Place and Culture has been conned. Starting in mid-2016, Helen Pluckrose, James Lindsay and Peter Bogossian wrote 20 entirely fictitious research papers and submitted them to respected journals. This week, the trio revealed that of their 20 made-up papers... Seven were published, seven were in review when the dog paper was exposed, and just six went nowhere.
1: That's a remarkable rate of success when your readers are supposedly experts in your subject, so how did they get away with it
3: for so long? It may be that the academics they have in their sights are immune to irony, which is no doubt seen as a manifestation of an elitist, patriarchal comedy culture that excludes the differently humorous. But it is worth a try.
1: Although writing 20 scientifically credible fake academic papers is an impressive effort, this week's obituary paid tribute to a prankster of even greater ambition. The opportunity to fool a lazy hack
3: was irresistible to Alan Abel. In 1972, journalists packed in to see Howard Hughes, the reclusive billionaire, who appeared scarved in bandages to announce that he was going to be frozen cryogenically and would emerge when the stock market peaked. In 1974, they were summoned to hear a former White House employee play the missing 18 and a half minutes of the Watergate tapes on an impressively cumbersome but mute machine. Two years later, 150 pressmen elbowed each other frantically to meet Deep Throat, the source of Watergate secrets. He was just trying
1: to bolster independence of thought and maybe to cause just a little creative chaos.
3: Hence his Society for Indecency to Naked Animals recommended shorts for any creature taller than four inches or longer than six and encouraged people to report neighbours taking naked pets for walks. The Society got serious coverage on the Today Show and from Walter Cronkite, gained 50,000 members, said its founder, and though exposed after four years, ran on and on.
1: And then, in 1980, he died.
3: His keys were found in the shape of a cross at Robert Redford's resort in Sundance, Utah. An undertaker gathered up his few belongings, his wake was announced, and an actress playing his wife called the New York Times. The Times ran an eight-inch obituary, two inches longer than for the guy who invented the six-pack. It then had to retract it when, miraculously, he rose again. Believe it or not,
1: that's the end. No, it really is of this week's tasting menu but there's more where that came from at economist.com or from economist radio on your podcast app and while you're with us leave us a rating it makes all the difference to what we do and it cheers us up or it doesn't depending i'm anne McElvoy in london this is the economist